This is On Script, bringing you conversations about current scholarship on Scripture. We're your hosts, Matt and Matt. Thanks for listening. Have you ever wondered about the relevance of Old Testament law? What about those laws concerning eating locusts versus eating cockroaches? Or what about the necessity of staying outside the camp if you have a skin disease? Or have you ever felt challenged by the portrayals of God's wrath and anger in the Old Testament? Or what about some of the morally problematic portions of the Old Testament, like the command to slaughter the inhabitants of Canaan, or views on women in the Bible? Each of these areas touches on the strange and troubling dimensions of the Old Testament. Well, in this brand new episode of On Script, we will be addressing these kinds of topics with Dr. Matthew Schlimm, who joins us today from Dubuque, Iowa. Matthew is on to discuss his recent book, This Strange and Sacred Scripture, Wrestling with the Old Testament and Its Oddities, published by Baker Academic in 2015. Matt, welcome to On Script. Thank you. Matt is Associate Professor of Old Testament at the University of uh, Dubuque Theological Seminary. He is the author of From Fratricide to Forgiveness, The Language of Ethics, uh, The Language and Ethics of Anger in Genesis, published by Eisenbrowns in 2011. He's the co-editor of the Common English Study Bible and now This Strange and Sacred Scripture, which we're here to discuss. So, Matt, you're, you're from Wisconsin, is that right? That's correct. Yes, I was born in Madison. Okay, because um, I, I once spent a year in the in the far north of Wisconsin in Cable near Hayward. Do you know Cable? I do not. Okay, it's it's the uh, it's the the upper northwest corner, home of the American Berkey Biner Ski Race, the cross country ski race. And oh, Hay- okay. Hayward nearby is the uh, the home of the World Lumberjack Championship. I, I was just wondering if you had ever been to that. No, I, I haven't. Okay. Uh, it sounds fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, Matt, I was just wondering if you could uh, tell the our listeners a bit about yourself, um, maybe how you got into biblical studies, and maybe some of the ideas that initially caught your interest and propelled you into the study of this strange and sacred scripture. Sure. I have been interested in the Bible since uh, I was pretty young. Um, I remember as a kid thinking, well, I, I could read the Hardy Boys or I could read the Word of God. And so uh, I naturally gravitated towards the Bible. Uh, a lot of times I encountered stuff that I did not understand. I think it, at the time I just kept reading until I, I got to something that sounded good. Um, but as I grew, old, grew older, uh, I continued to enjoy reading the Bible, and I started taking uh, classes in college uh, about it. And the more I dug into it, uh, it just struck me uh, that there's this this paradox. On, on the one hand, uh, the Old Testament especially is is very weird. There's just a lot of really strange stuff in it. Um, And on the other hand, uh, the church has said, well, out of all the writings in the world, uh, you know, the Bible is what we are going to say is is God's word. It's what we're going to say is inspired. And uh, there just seems to be a a little bit of a or more than a little bit of a tension there. And uh, so that's something that's that's intrigued me. Uh, Why is it that the church has has dared to to 
bank such a big claim on on the Bible? And you know, what do we make of all the the strange stuff uh, that we find there? So that's that's something that's you know animated um, my interest in the Old Testament uh, for many years. Um, there's a lot of you know other things I've enjoyed about it too. It's um, given a lot of life to my own faith. Um, there are other things I like. Uh, for example, it, it tends to talk about God in very concrete terms, which my my simple mind appreciates. Um, but those are those are some of the main reasons that I, I got into Old Testament uh, studies. Yeah. So uh, in light of that, is, is the book then that you've published here, The Strange and uh, Sacred Scripture, is does that kind of gather together a lot of those interests that that drew you in initially? Um and was this a, an opportunity to reflect further on those? It it was, um, and some of the some of the chapters I've written are, you know, really right up, uh, you know, come right out of straight personal struggles I've had, personal questions I've wrestled with. Uh, others I've uh, said, well, this isn't maybe as big of an issue for me. But um, I when I wrote the book, I, I tried to ask myself. What are some of the questions that uh, a person in the 21st century reading the Old Testament is naturally going to ask about it? Uh, what are some of the hangups that people are naturally going to have? Um, and I tried to focus on those. And so, um, you know, I, I talk quite a bit about creation and evolution. Uh, that's not an issue that I have felt um at least not any time recently, as, as, as being sort of first and foremost uh, a, a concern. But I know for a lot of people it is. And I think that by paying attention to, uh, by reading the Bible closely and, and paying attention to key features of the text, it can actually help us as we, we struggle with uh, what do we make of it uh, after Darwin. So, um, you know, a, a couple chapters like that, you know, um, didn't spring first and foremost uh, from my my personal experience, um, but some other ones uh, really do reflect um, some some things that I have struggled with in my own life. Um, for example, in chapter ten, uh, it's called "Drowning in Tears and Raging at God." I I talk about the Psalms, and a lot of the Psalms are filled with a lot of emotion. Um, that you know is sometimes very sorrowful sometimes very angry and that was uh quite a departure from how i was taught to re uh pray when i was growing up i was taught you know fold your hands bow your head use a lot of pleases um and uh instead uh, you know the the psalms are different and i i found that you know um what for one thing they teach us to be very real uh with who we are and and that's something that's helped in my own uh, faith walk. Yeah, I, you know, I remember reading an interview with um, Chaim Potok, uh, the Jewish uh, novelist, and he he was talking about how uh, in in the synagogue tradition that he grew up in, there was this um, there was this routine where before they would start the service, if someone had a grievance with God, they would go to the front where the ark was and 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 shout at God until. They had dealt with whatever it was they had to deal with, and then the service would begin as normal. And it, I remember reading that, and that just really struck me as so contrary to my own church experience of appropriate emotions in a context mm -hmm. of worship. Um, so, Matt, I have uh, two.
two quick stories about your book. Um, actually, I have three stories. Uh, your, your book has generated experiences for me already, um, even though I just picked it up in November. So I, w I was at the bookstalls at the annual Society of Biblical Literature meeting in Atlanta, and I was, I was perusing the Baker Academic books, and I picked up your book because it's on the Old Testament, and that's my area, and so I thought, oh, what's, what's this? And uh, a woman nearby saw that I picked it up, and she said, oh, I used that book in my Old Testament class, and they all love it. And I thought, hmm. well, that's a great endorsement. And uh, so first of all, I just wanted to congratulate you on this book, because it's one thing, I think, in our field to get endorsements from other scholars. Uh, there's, there's a lot of doing favors for each other that happens, I think, you know, in writing endorsements. But then to get an endorsement from an intro to the Old Testament class, that's something else. So well done on that. Well, thank you. <laughs> And then the other one was then, so then I, I picked it up and it was too late to assign it for my classes at that point, but I did recommend it to my class and said, if you get the chance, pick it up. And, and, and one, one of my students, she bought the book and then I saw her at work and she said, oh, I didn't want to come into work today. I just wanted to stay home and keep reading that book. So, wow. yeah, <laughs> so it's a. Uh, so high recommendation, um, highly recommended. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. So I just want to ask first about the title of your book. I'll come back to the third story later, by the way. Uh, um, what I was wondering was, so you have this duality here, strange and sacred. Why do you think it's important to kind of recognize both of those features um, when reading with the Old Testament? Or what are you signaling with that title? Well, uh, in a lot of ways, I think that's the central tension of the book is, I mean, I write this book as a Christian writing to other Christians. And, you know, it, it, it seems if we're going to be, if we're going to be honest about the content of the Old Testament, there's just a lot of really strange stuff in there, uh, things that we would never have written if we were, you know, try, if some, if God said, hey, uh, I'd, I'd like you to, you know, come up with some scriptures that'll be used for thousands of, of years, um, you know, I doubt that it would uh, deal with some of the content, uh, you know, that, that the Old Testament actually does, deals with. Um, and so uh, there, there's just something that's fundamentally strange. It's alien uh, that that takes us off guard uh, when we read it. And I, I think we need to be very honest about that fact. Um, and at the same time, uh, how do we reconcile that strangeness with the fact that, as I, I said earlier, the, the church has uh, dared to say that this is, is, is sacred scripture, that this is God's word? Um, it's, it seems that it's very easy to affirm one of those two things. Uh, you can say, well, it's so weird, it's so strange, uh, it doesn't connect with our lives today, uh, it's irrelevant, um, it's it's morally problematic. Uh, it, it's it's quite easy to do to take that sort of approach. Or on the other hand, it's it's easy to say, well, um, yeah, uh, the Bible is God's word, and so now instead of though really reckoning with the weird content and the problematic content there, um, I'm, you know, I'm going to gloss over everything and uh, try to come up with sort of a, a pat answer and try to uh, defend the Bible. And um, so that, you know, everything works just just perfectly. And uh, I, I, I think that both of those positions are, are, are problematic. Um, and 
the the book tries to carve out a way where we can be fully honest about how weird and challenging the Old Testament is, uh, while at the same time saying, yeah, there's really stuff here that that is sacred uh, that we as Christians really can cherish. Now, there's a, a kind of second subtitle to your book, if I'm reading it right, and that is the Old Testament as a friend in faith. So you suggest that we should see the Old Testament as a friend. How, how is it that you came to this view, and what are the some of the gains of seeing it this way? Sure. Um, well, you know, as I was uh, thinking about this, uh, I, a, a number of literary theorists and, and, and really people throughout the ages have, have talked about books as their friends um, and um, have said that they've they've been surrounded by this this great company, uh, whether you think about personifying characters in the books or uh, the authors who are telling the stories uh, or the narrators, that, that these are, are, are people who affect us. Um, that leave a lasting impact on our lives. And uh, it seemed to me that this was uh, something that was underexplored um, and a, a valuable metaphor for making sense of how we approach the Old Testament. And so I, I try to return to this metaphor throughout the Old Test uh, or throughout my book um, and uh, really mine it, uh, you know, for as, as many resources as we can. And so, for example, you know, I, I think about how with some of my friends, um, some of them I, I just have to have a lot of patience with, <laughs> um, you know, and uh, it, it, it takes time to, you know, they'll, they'll do something and I, I, I need to, you know, not have a knee jerk reaction to them. And sometimes the, the Old Testament is like that. Uh, we need patience with it. Um, you know, some some of my friends uh, come from other other countries and it's required extra patience uh, to work through language barriers, uh, to work through cultural differences. Uh, but I've also found those friendships to sometimes be the most rewarding because uh, they open my eyes to totally new ways of seeing reality, new ways of, of, of being in the world. Um, and then uh, I would I'd add this just a, another way I try to develop this metaphor. Um, I think that friends exert an enormous influence over our lives. And, you know, when I look at when I think of myself, when I'm faced with some really monumental decision about my life, um, I call up my friends. I talk to them. Uh, we we think it over. Uh, they stretch me. In, in new ways, they make me consider possibilities I wouldn't think about otherwise. Um, and I think that at, at its very best, uh, when we're reading the Bible, it, it should operate in a similar way. Um, it should stretch us. Uh, it should cause us to think about new possibilities we would not otherwise uh, consider. Um, and ultimately, it should bring us closer to God. Um, so that's the metaphor that, that drives the book, uh, the theme that I keep returning to with these different questions that people naturally have about the Old Testament. I found that to be a very uh, productive model, uh, meta uh, metaphor for thinking about the Old Testament. The other thing I was contemplating as I was reading your book was was the way in which there there are phases to friendships as well where you know you talked about how some people just see the Old Testament as sacred and we might kind of idealize friends when we don't actually know them and 
and then you, you get to know them and you're kind of shocked by what you find you know you you um, or you're always apologizing to other people for things they say <laughs> um, or, or kind of afraid what they're going to say next in front of someone else. But then after, <laughs> after a while, you, you kind of move to a new appreciation for them where, where some of the things, sometimes it's those very things that you were apologizing for that you learn to appreciate in your friend um, that used to embarrass you or something. So I, I think, I think there's, just all sorts of directions that you can go with that metaphor. So it was helpful. Well, I, I really like that one. I, I didn't really make that one um, explicit in the, the book, but I, I really like it and appreciate it. I, I think you're exactly right. There often are phases of friendship and, um, you know, sometimes when we're first making a friendship, you're just so excited about all the possibilities there. And, I think about, you know, a newer Christian who's just starting to read the Bible and how excited they can be about it. And, um, you know, yeah, I think there's a lot of great parallels there. Uh, when, when, one thing some theorists about metaphors have talked about is that they're inexhaustible. There's always more dimensions to it than, uh, we realize. And, um, yeah, so that's, that's one I hadn't, uh, given much thought to, but it's, it's great. I like it. Yeah. Um, so, so one of the areas that you discuss in your book um, is the ways that you need to tell your friends sometimes that what they're doing bothers you. And I think that leads into a question about how you apply the model of friendship to the so-called texts of terror in the Old Testament. So, the, for instance, the book of Joshua, which has the command to slaughter the Canaanites. So, first of all, on a personal note, what's your relationship with Joshua been over the years and then how have you come to see Joshua as a friend in faith? Uh, that's that's a great question um, and just to tie in with your your previous question I'd, I'd say that uh, earlier on in my walk with faith I, I like Joshua a lot especially the first chapter where God says you know be strong and courageous and I remember reading that and you know applying that to different events I, I faced as, you know, someone starting college and it was helpful, but you read on further and, and yeah, it is kind of like, uh, getting to know a friend better. You start to re you encounter things that at least initially you, you really don't like. Um, and you know, there's, I'm, I'm someone who's committed to nonviolence. Uh, my dad is a pacifist, um, and in Joshua, you get not just violence, um, but God condoning the violence. And, uh, in 2001, I, I spent some time, um, in Israel and Palestine and, uh, saw firsthand homes that had been, you know, blown to rubble and texts like Joshua really really bothered me uh, uh, then. And, you know, one one thing I try to do um, in this book is to, like I said earlier, just be very honest about the problems that we encounter. And while I think there are resources to deal with them, I'm not sure that every problem we encounter in the Bible uh, is a problem that we're going to be able to completely resolve and completely answer. Um, and so with uh, these texts of terror in, in Joshua, 
Um, I, I think there's some things we can do uh, that might relieve the tension a little bit. Um, for example, I think it's helpful to pay attention to the original context. Um, you know, when God says, uh, you know, de- destroy everything that you encounter. Um, part of what's going on there is that in the ancient Near East, if you wanted to get rich quick, uh, war was one way to do it. Um, instead of a, a Madoff uh, or Ponzi scheme, uh, you'd go conquer someone and uh, the spoils of war go to the victor. Um, well, God was making clear, I think, that um, with these battles, um, that, that God is the reason um, that the Israelites were victorious. It wasn't through their own uh, military uh, prowess or, or through stockpiling weapons. And um, so uh, the you know, the, the, the prizes of war uh, go to God. Uh, that's the logic that seems to be operating there. Now, I still find these extremely problematic. And, um, you know, I, there have been times with my friends when I've had to say to them, look, what, what was going on there? What were you doing there? That, that made no sense to me what you were doing. Um, and there are times when my friends have had to say that sort of thing to me. And I, I think with this sort of uh, with texts like these, uh, uh, it's a, the, the, the metaphor of friendship gives us that sort of permission to say, OK, I don't I don't get this. This doesn't make sense to me. Um, this just just something about this seems fundamentally uh, problematic. Um, I'm still committed to you as a friend. I still love you. Um, but but this stuff I just don't get right now. Um, and I, I think that as uh, human beings in a, a fallen world uh, who, you know, are, are separated from these texts by, you know, uh, half of the world, half of the globe, and then, you know, thousands of years, uh, there are going to be times when it just won't all make sense to us. And I think that's OK. Um, I hope if uh, nothing else, my, my book tells people it's OK if we don't have all the answers. <laughs> um, it's, you know, this it, we can see this as God's word and trust that God will defend it. We don't need to, uh, you know, um, defend every question or or see every question that's ever been raised as a, a threat to our faith. Um, I think that questions about the Bible uh, just show that people are reading it carefully and thinking about it and that they're they're good. Um, so those are some of the ways that I, I, I talk about some other things, too. But those are some of the ways that I uh, try to wrestle with it. One other thing I say is that I, I think it's important with things like this to prayerfully uh, talk about them, to say, to pray, God, I don't get it. Why would you put this in, in the Bible? This doesn't make sense to me. And uh, given the way that people sometimes talk to God in the Bible, I, I think we have permission to, to be that honest with God in prayer. highlights for me that your approach of seeing the Old Testament as a friend uh, lends itself to a very relational approach to the Bible um, and and the way that God uses that, uh, rather than a a kind of um, utilitarian approach to the Bible, uh, which would see it as, well, how is this text useful, or how is it 
how am I going to get this text to say what I needed to say, <laughs> which is a, <laughs> a, a good word. Um, but you, you, in friendships, you have to kind of live with those, with those unknowns, those tensions, the fact that you, um, you give the benefit of the doubt um, when things seem wrong because of a past history of, of faithfulness and so on. Um, Matt, once in chapter four, uh, and you touch on this in a few other chapters as well, you talk about how much of the Old Testament is story. And I think we all know this and are used to it from a pretty early age, uh, if we've grown up with the Bible. Um, but our expectations of the Bible are often at odds with that fact, as you highlight in your book. So we look to the Bible for things like daily guidance or advice on relationships or spiritual encouragement. So... Uh, we also look at it to find out what happened in the past uh, for, you know, sort of record of history. So what are the some of the common expectations that stand to be challenged by the Old Testament in your estimation, um, and particularly around the idea that the Old Testament is a story? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think a lot of times we see stories as something that's just an illustration. Um, and And maybe, you know, the whole notion of a sermon or homily oftentimes reinforces that point where there's, you know, this this driving thesis or, or point that the preacher's trying to convey. And here's a story that illustrates that. Um, but the premium seems to be placed on that that moral behind it. Um, when we get to the Old Testament's stories, I'm not sure there's always a moral. And if there is one, I'm not sure that we can say, okay, well, once we've got the moral down, we can do away with the story. Um, instead, I, I think it's useful to think of the Old Testament stories as uh, ways of giving us experience, um, experience that will really help us uh, with things that we encounter in life. Uh, most people know that, you know, if you're going to be good at something, uh, you can learn so much head knowledge, but then you've got to actually go out and spend some time gaining experience. Uh, when I was in college, I worked construction uh, in the summers. And, you know, I mean, I knew what a hammer was supposed to do with a nail. <laughs> that doesn't mean uh, I always, you know, drove that nail right into a board. Uh, there are a lot of times when I bent it and, uh and, and meanwhile, these, these guys working around me had done this for so long. Uh, they were just so proficient at it. And it was amazing, um, you know, the, the skill uh, with which they were able to do that. And uh, I think that a lot of the Old Testament stories give us experience. And sometimes it's not even experience that we necessarily think we need or really want. Sometimes it's experience dealing with really yucky stuff. Uh, really difficult things, uh, dealing with immorality. And I think it gives us experience with that um, because through gaining, um, for one thing, for example, uh, we can see the consequences of sin without having to actually experience it um, ourselves. Uh, you know, I think about one example I talk about in the book is, you know, Abraham uh, and his polygamy. And, uh, you know, he um, here's this guy whose wife says, hey, take my slave, sleep with her. And uh, he does. And everyone ends up just in tears in the end. And, you know, I think that that's a, a useful thing uh, for 
subsequent readers of the text to keep in mind. Um, it'd be one thing if we read, you know, only have one wife. Um, but when you actually spend time with Abraham and Hagar and Sarah and you see how this uh, thing that they, they try to do, uh, probably with fairly good intentions, uh, ends up just causing everyone heartache. Uh, I, I think that it, you know, can shape us uh, in in good ways and sh- shape our moral life. So, um, yeah, I think that story works on us as, as readers uh, in a lot of ways by giving us experience and training for things that we may encounter later in life. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, your your mention of the, the hammer just reminded me, I haven't thought about this in a while, but I, I used to work construction in the summers, and I remember the first time I picked up the pneumatic nailer, and <laughs> those nails just went flying all over the place because I would I would sort of hold the trigger down too long or skip off the, the board. But yeah, I... <laughs> um, so one of the areas where Christians find the greatest deal of irrelevance in the Old Testament is the law. Um, and the law is the stuff that we're no longer required to do as Christians, that we're freed from, and Jesus, after all, declared all foods clean. So why then would we need to hear from and read about food laws that are no longer directly applicable to our daily life? Uh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I used to really hate the fact that there were these laws in the Old (laughs) Testament and uh, had no idea what to do with them. And, you know, I I like my pork barbecue. And, you know, so what what, what do you do? Well, I've actually, you know, come 180 degrees um, and I've really come to enjoy reading uh, Old Testament laws. And uh, there are different reasons for that. Uh, One is I think there are certain logics at work and it's kind of fun once you start to see uh, how certain things get played out time and again um, but another thing is that I think there's a middle ground between on the one hand saying you have to obey every detail uh, of these hundreds of, of commandments found in the Old Testament and uh, saying well this doesn't apply so I'm just going to throw it out I think there's a middle ground there, and I think that that's an option that Christians haven't sufficiently explored. And so, you know, with the food example, um, I, you know, I think that food is an intensely ethical issue. Uh, when you think about the means by which it's uh, produced and, and people like Wendell Berry have written a lot about, I think he has a book called Bringing It to the Table. Um, but when you, you think about um, uh, the means by which it's produced, are, are we using pesticides that are harming the earth uh, in the long run? Um, are we uh, being good stewards of the land that God has given us? Are we distributing the food in such a way that's fair to all the people of the world? Uh, there's a lot of issues there. And I think the Old Testament, by talking about things like food, remind us that, that this is something that we need to focus on in our faith. And we don't need to return to all of the conventions of Iron Age Israel uh, to do that. But there are certainly modern issues um, where 
Christians, I think, should use their their God given brains uh, to discern what we should do uh, uh, with food, how to use food in a way that glorifies God. Um, I think about, you know, uh, we're in Lent right now. Um, I'll tell you what, Matt, I love donuts. I love donuts. And but, you know, I mean, uh, not too long before Lent started, I, I stopped at Donut Boy, this place uh, uh, by my house. And I, I pigged out, uh, early in the morning and I just felt awful. And, and this, this Lent, I, I felt convicted, you know, Matt, you need, you need to, this isn't healthy for you. Um, you want to be around to see your kids grow old. Scarfing down donut after donut is not a good way to ensure that this happens. You know, there's, there's ethical issues here involved. And, um, I, I think we live in in an age when food has probably never tasted better, and yet the food that tastes the best uh, isn't always the food that's uh, the healthiest for us. So I, th- I think that yeah, as Christians, we need to really think about these issues. And um, I, I think there's a lot of topics covered in Old Testament laws that initially strike us as as bizarre. What does this have to do with anything? Uh, but the more we think about it, it's it's, it's like that with food. Um, you realize, wait a second, maybe, maybe this actually is something that we need to, you know, uh, uh, reflect on together. Yeah, I, I like the example that you use uh, drawing from Alan Jacobs' book, Living Biblically, about, about the locusts. Uh, so Le- Leviticus 11.22 permits people to eat um, certain kinds of locusts. And uh, you're quoting from Alan Jacobs here, and, and it says, In biblical times, swarming locusts would often devour crops and cause famines famines the only way for the poor to survive was by eating the locusts themselves so if the bible wasn't didn't approve of locust eating the poorest israelites would have died of starvation this i like more and more i feel it's important to look at the bible with an open heart if you roll up your sleeves even the oddest passages and the one about edible bugs qualifies can be seen (laughs) as a sign of god's mercy and compassion yeah, that's a he has such a gift for words and yeah, that's a great great book, uh The Year of Living Biblically that he wrote. Yeah, and and you have some other great examples in the book. Uh for instance, uh Deuteronomy 25:11 and 12, if if uh if men get into a fight with one another and the wife of one intervenes to rescue her husband from the grip of his opponents by reaching out and seizing his genitals, you shall cut off her hand, show no pity. And you talk about that verse and it just sounds horrible and merciless uh but then you reflect on it and you talk about uh your friend who um who said uh having uh, matt i just thought of this having children is one of the greatest values in ancient israel when you read genesis it's constantly concerned with having kids the bible's first chapter commands humans to be fruitful and multiply and then genesis lists genealogies and describes god's miraculous intervention with a series of barren couples Maybe this law made it into the Bible because of the sanctity attached to fertility, reproduction, and children. And uh, and then you said, in a sense, this commandment tells us that we need to consider the well-being of our enemies, even when they are attacking those we love and depend on for survival. Yeah, it's funny with that. Uh, my my friend who uh, 
you know, I was talking to about that that verse. He he specifically asked that I not footnote him and mention his name. Uh, but so we, uh, we don't know who that friend is. Yeah, no, uh, I I went to a Christian college, and uh, that's where I first heard about that verse. Was you know some someone had had encountered that somewhere, and it was it was one of these dorm room discussions of like guess what I found in the Bible sort of thing. Uh, and so, yeah. Um, but yeah, that's definitely a text where, yeah, at first glance, you're just like, what the, and, uh, but then, yeah, as you, uh, reflect on it more, you're like, wait a second here. This, this is actually kind of telling us to, um, if not love our enemies to, to think about, you know, their long-term well-being. Um, so Matt, I'm wondering about, um, those times when friends do things that are very bizarre or cryptic. Um, one of the things you didn't discuss in your book um, was the, the apocalyptic literature in Daniel 7 to 12. And I just thought I'd like to hear you reflect on how your friendship model might help you make sense of uh, some of those stranger pieces of literature in the Old Testament. Um, in, in some ways, I, I guess I would say that I see apocalyptic literature. Um, it's it's almost like your friend is talking in code, um, and you know, um, I mean, in fact, when I mean, this is a New Testament book, but when you look at Revelation, uh, a lot of what it's doing is it's using Old Testament code words as a way of talking about you know realities uh, at, at the time it was written, and. Um, you know, sim- similarly with, uh, you know, the Daniel 7 through 12 or, or parts of Ezekiel or, um, you know, even uh, you could argue parts of Isaiah, uh, you, you do get this uh, imagery that that's really out there. Um, but there's there's usually a, a meaning behind it. And uh, there's also oftentimes a, a reason why. The original authors were reluctant to come out and, you know, they were often facing persecution and were reluctant to come out and say, you know, it was a death sentence to say, hey, uh, this group that's oppressing us, uh, you know, they're they're awful. Uh, they're opposed to all that's good. And uh, so they they talk about it in these roundabout ways. Um, and it's it's sort of like, you know, we you know, we, we, we get the code we, or we hear the encoded message and we need to think about, OK, what's the code here? And and fortunately, sometimes in, in Daniel, it comes right out and, you know, says, OK, well, this actually stands for that. Um, and then you also do see the same message being re- reinforced chapter after chapter. So you can even if it's a chapter that doesn't give you the code, you can sort of see, um, you know, what the, the message is based on the surrounding context. Um, but, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> I mean, that's that's a friend doing some weird stuff. Uh, <laughs> now, I like that example. I like that um, metaphor of code because it's sort of like you're. you're you're emailing your friend who's living in North Korea and you can't speak openly right now. So you're going to have to read between the lines. Um, I can't talk right now, but there's a little horn that's going to rise up. And he's going to speak all kinds of arrogant things. And you have to you have to discern um, what he's really saying there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's, that. that's great. Yeah. <laughs> um, another story I just wanted to share about your book. So I was in uh, Starbucks with a couple of friends here in the UK and we were talking about the the dialogic nature of the Old 
Old Testament. Um, and and so I, I was reading your book at the time, and so so I, I shared with them uh, from uh, pages 154 and 55 in your book where you you lay out a really interesting dialogue between uh, imagined dialogue between Ruth and Ezra, and it's over the issue of the inclusion of foreigners. And I just wanted to read a few phrases um, or a few uh, parts of that dialogue. So. Um, so Ruth and Ezra are going back and forth about who's in and who's out, who's allowed into the community. Ruth says, what upset you so much, foreign marriages or foreign gods? Because um, Ezra had taken issue with um, the link between foreign marriages and foreign gods. Ezra said, both. The two go hand in hand. Ruth said, no, they don't. I left behind the gods of Moab when I followed my mother-in-law to Israel. Ezra, not everyone is like you. Ruth. If you made the same demands in my day, I would have been forced out of Israel. I would have taken my son Obed with me. He was King David's grandfather. Where would your nation be without David's line? Ezra. David's line took us into exile. It was David's son Solomon who invited other gods into our land when he married foreigners. We abandoned the Lord for, for those other gods. And you go on. And I just thought that was a really helpful way of entering empathetically into two very, very different views on what the post-exilic community should look like um, and whether the foreigner should be part of that. And w when I was reading this then, this woman uh, came up to me and said, are, are you guys performers? Um, <laughs> you guys should you should perform that play. That would be great. That would be a great play in the, in the theater here in Cheltenham. So anyway, we're, I'll keep you posted on whether we do that or not. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, that that was challenging to write in the sense that I'm naturally so much more sympathetic to Ruth. And so I wanted, you know, in earlier drafts, you know, I mean, she's, you know, uh, <laughs> probably not even letting Ezra get much of a word in edgewise. Um, but, yeah, I mean, part it was a good exercise for me because I, I said, Matt, if you're going to be honest here, you know, the Bible really does have both voices. So you've got to let. Ezra, you know, as much as you might initially disagree, speak his mind to and really envision. And yeah, I think it does reflect these broader biblical discussions going on. Um, so yeah, it was it was a fun thing to do. It wasn't something I, um, you know, that we normally think of when we think about people doing Bible studies to put two characters in a time machine so they meet up and discuss. But uh, yeah, it was a fun activity. I, I enjoyed that. So what are we as readers of the Bible supposed to do when we go to the Bible looking for guidance on a particular issue and we get there and we find a debate? How do you work with a debate? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I, I think there's a variety of things to do in, in that case. Um, one would be to ask yourself, well, is your situation more like one person uh, than like the other? Um, you know, figure out as much as you can about the context of, of you know, the two texts uh, and see if one fits you better than the other. Um, I'd also say to, you know, just naturally be aware of our own sinful nature, recognize that we as humans have a tendency to sometimes want to weasel out of stuff. And so if you encounter two different voices, um, you know, in some ways it's, it's, it's helpful to sort of do what I 
forced myself to do with Ezra there, um, you know, to, to say, okay, I don't, this, this other opposing voice here, I, I don't naturally have much affinity for, but I'm going to force myself to figure out more about that point of view. Um, and, and even if I, in the end, can't say I totally agree with what's going on, I at least want to understand that person's logic. Um, you know, it's kind of like with the harem text, uh, uh, that I mentioned earlier, I, I think we can better understand the logic of the text, uh, understand the logic of the text, even if we don't, um, you know, even if that's nothing we would ever want to uh, practice today. Um, and, you know, another thing I think that can can help us in some ways is, you know, reading the Bible with other people. Um, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, we, we, we are all finite beings and sometimes we really need other Christians, um, uh, and e- even other people who aren't Christians reading the Bible alongside us, um, to help us, uh, figure out what it means and what the different perspectives are. I think that, you know, sometimes, I think some Christians err on the side of sacrificing too much. Um, they don't do very good with the part of uh, the command in Leviticus and, and that Jesus said about, you know, where it says, love your neighbor as yourself. They don't do so good with the as yourself part. Um, and then I think there are others that struggle with, with you know, love, loving their neighbors. Um, and so it's, it's about a balance. And sometimes we need other voices to help us figure out what that balance is. Matt, there's so much more I'd love to unpack with you about this book, but I'm going to have to refer our readers to uh, or our listeners to go buy your book and and have a look at at all the other really interesting chapters that you have in there. This has been a very enjoyable conversation. I, I appreciate especially the clarity and nuance that you offer uh, readers on a whole range of challenging issues in the Old Testament, and for your compelling thesis. Uh, that we view the Old Testament as a friend in faith. So thanks for taking the time to talk today, Matt. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. So I've been speaking with Dr. Matthew Schlimm about his book, This Strange and Sacred Scripture, Wrestling with the Old Testament and Its Oddities, published by Baker Academic in 2015. We'll have a link to the book on our website, onscript.study, where we'll also have links to other relevant information as well. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to On Script, conversations on current biblical scholarship. Until next time, visit us at our site, onscript.study. Mm-hmm.